This is a podcast from Seven Vineyard. Happy Christmas, Christmas Eve. I don't think we've done a Christmas Eve service for a number of years. So it's really nice to gather together on this day. Um, and um, I'm going to start with a quote from Mark Twain. Remember the adventures of Huckleberry Finn? Do you remember that? Yeah. Mark Twain uh, took great pleasure in highlighting the fact that his birth in 1835 was associated with the appearance of Halley's Comet, the first appearance of Halley's Comet in 75 years. And um, commenting on this, he even predicted that he would die uh, when Halley's Comet uh, completed its orbit and was next visible in the sky in 1910. He said this, I came in with Halley's Comet in 1835. It's coming again next year and I expect to go out with it. It will be the greatest disappointment of my life if I don't go out with Halley's Comet. The Almighty has said, no doubt, now here are these two unaccountable freaks. They came in together and they must go out together. (laughs) I love that, Mark Twain. Such a great author. Um, right, remarkably, that's exactly what happened. He did die that year. And um, of course, it is an often repeated phrase uh, that, uh, what did you say? I just said, did he? Did he? Yes, he did. He did. He certainly did. Um, it's an often repeated phrase, isn't it, that some event is written in the stars. And that's obviously because the stars were the way in which we, we uh, used to uh, navigate our way around the, the globe. And even now, uh, the stars, some will use the stars as they sail around the oceans. Um, uh, but also the stars mean a lot to people. Uh, you know, in, in, the day of, uh, in the days before electricity, you know, in the dark winters of the Northern Hemisphere or the Southern Hemisphere, you would look up at the stars and you would see all of the stars in their great array. And the stars meant something to you. And the stars, they tended to appear and disappear in uh, accordance with different events. And so the stars actually meant a great deal to the ancient peoples. Uh, Take the Romans, uh, uh, they celebrated Julius Caesar's life in uh, 44 BC. And um, a tremendously bright comet appeared over Rome, and it was regarded by the majority of the population of Rome as being an indication that Julius Caesar, who had previously just died, had been received into the heavens with the gods. And history notes that his, actually his nephew, Octavian, um, who was his chosen heir, took that as a wonderful omen for him personally and for his future career. And indeed, Caesar Augustus was one of the greatest Caesars. And uh, and in each of these cases, what we see is that there was a real celestial phenomenon that appeared at their birth or at their coronation. Um, Another one would be um, one of Rome's most formidable enemies, Mithridates, the king of Pontus, which we would now know more provincially as northern Turkey. But in his uh, his period of reign, um, he made in his propaganda much of the fact that two comets had appeared, one on the occasion of his birth in 135 BC and one on the occasion of his coronation 15 years later. And these, he claimed, uh, heralded his greatness. So it's, it's not beyond... Uh, uh, ancient history to give us examples uh, when actually stars have appeared and they have been considered to be a huge portent of great things for the people associated with those stars. And so no doubt you'll be familiar with the story of the three wise men um, who followed a star uh, to visit the baby Jesus. And that's recorded at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel. So let's read that together. If you've got a Bible on your phone, pull it up. It's Matthew 2 verses 1 to 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi, you might read there, wise men, came from the east to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. 
When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all of the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. They replied, in Bethlehem in Judea, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them where, sorry, found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they'd heard the king, they went on their way and the star that they'd seen where it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. A very familiar story, no doubt to many of you, and uh, one that um, uh, has uh, fallen a cornerstone of the nativity ever since it was written. There is disagreement um, uh, amongst uh, scholars and uh, astronomers as to what the star was. Some think that it was a conjunction of Jupiter, Saturn and Venus. I don't know if you saw last year, we had a similar conjunction in the night sky. I remember it very vividly, seeing it driving home on the western sky every night. Just incredible. Uh, well, just as an incredible phenomenon to witness. Um, others think it might have been a supernova, uh, a star literally exploding. Um, others suggest compellingly that it was a comet, and they cite the rising of the comet in the eastern sky and its movement over a period of 12 to 18 months in the southern sky, and uh, the presence of a tail, uh, which would indicate a comet, um, pointing to the town of Bethlehem uh, from the perspective of where the Magi were traveling from, which was in the east. Now, Matthew, who wrote this account of Jesus' life, does not enlighten us as to why this star led them to the conclusion that a Messiah would be born in Judea, okay? But he just took it for granted that they accepted that, whoever was reading this the first time, whoever was the original audience for his, his writings. But if we look back through the Bible and we do a bit of uh, forensic work, what we can find out is there are some references uh, in the Old Testament uh, and some important connections to these three wise men. So first of all, Matthew says that they came from the east. Okay, what that means is they would have come from what we now think of as modern day Iraq. Um, the area between the Euphrates and the Tigris River, uh, uh, Tigris? Tigris, yeah. Um, uh, this was known as Mesopotamia. It was um, one of the, uh, anthropologists now would describe it as one of the centers of human development and growth, um, uh, along with other uh, major river valleys, um, one in India, one in China, one in East Africa. Um, and um, this area was historically very powerful. Various city-states rose and fell, rose and fell. Uh, one of them that stands out though is Babylon. And Babylon was one of the most powerful empires that ever ruled at that time. Uh, they successfully conquered Israel, um, and uh, they were one of many empires that conquered Israel. I, I've said in the last talk that I gave at the beginning of the Advent period that that piece of geographic land, uh, really where Israel is, is the bridge. It's the land bridge between three continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe. Uh, it, it's no surprise to me uh, that this piece of land has been fought over 
throughout human history. And indeed, uh, the list of empires that have conquered that piece of land is long and illustrious and would include the Romans and the Greeks, and in this case, the Babylonians. And to be fair, the conquest of Israel by Babylon was probably the most devastating, was probably the most traumatic, in that they literally destroyed its principal cities, they ruined its rural lands, and they carried off the elites, the, the people who were educated, the people in power, they literally carried them off and took them back to Mesopotamia, to Babylon, and resettled them there. It was a way of completely uh, um, um, incapacitating a nation. It was a way of decapitating a nation and ensuring that it would not function in the future, that there would no, be no rebellion. It was a way of completely destroying an entire nation. And, uh, and so these uh, educated elites were forcibly relocated to Babylon. And one of those educated elite that was, reported, was relocated to Babylon was a man called Daniel. Now, we know of Daniel through his writings in the Old Testament. Uh, but Daniel was actually considered to be one of the wisest and most incredible leaders in Babylon. So he was removed from Jerusalem, taken to Babylon, but quickly gained influence. And why is that? Well. If you're familiar with the story of Daniel, you'll know it's because he was able to interpret the king's dreams, the king of Babylon. He was able to interpret his dreams, and that gave him great influence. So let's read about this um, in Daniel 5, verses 11 to 12. And this is, um, these are the words of the queen of Babylon describing Daniel. And she's talking to the king, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar. So she says, There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. If you're the king, and you're a king of an ancient um, kingdom like Babylon, then to have advisors who can help you interpret the times, to help you speak God's mind to you so that you can actually govern effectively and most importantly have success in your governorship, you need good advisors. And it appears that Daniel was a particularly good advisor. Uh, it says he had a keen mind, knowledge and understanding, and also the ability, interestingly, to interpret dreams, explain riddles and solve difficult problems. Frankly, we all need a person like that in our households at Christmas time, don't we? To help us with all the games that we're going to play. But the truth is, is that Daniel, Daniel was that type of man. And he gained incredible influence because actually the, the Babylon exile was only about 70 years. So in a very short space of time, Daniel became the first and foremost. We would call him the prime minister. He was the first minister of Babylon. And he wasn't even a Babylonian. Okay, so this is a man whose influence was huge. And of course, we read about him in the Bible because his writings are in the Old Testament, but it's fairly clear that his writings were also part of Babylonian ancient literature. So the ancient literature of Babylon was formed and shaped by this man called Daniel, who was a Jew, not even a Babylonian. Now, it appears to scholars of the Old Testament that... Um, that Daniel's prophecies and D Daniel's words of wisdom contain more references to the arrival of a Jewish Messiah than any other Old Testament book. 
We often think of Isaiah, don't we, as being the sort of Old Testament prophet that foretells Jesus. Well, actually, there's more references in Daniel to the Messiah than there are in Isaiah. And if those references were in the Old Testament book that we call Daniel, then you can be sure that they were also in the Babylonian literature as well. So, uh, let me give you an example. In, in Daniel 9.25, um, we read that the angel Gabriel speaks to Daniel. And, uh, and he says to him, in 490 years, Israel will be dominated by other nations, but after that, God will send someone to rescue them, a Messiah. I'm going to read this to you, Daniel 9.25. Now listen, this is the uh, the angel Gabriel, we're told, speaking to Daniel. Now listen, it will be 49 years plus 434 years from the time the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed Messiah comes. No, uh, Messiah means anointed one. Kings were anointed with oil. They were anointed with power. And they were considered to be, the Jewish kings were considered to be anointed by the Spirit of God. Okay? So they were anointed. This is what Messiah means. So... There's this reference in Daniel 9.25 that 490 years after Israel, uh, sorry, Jerusalem is rebuilt, after the Babylonian exile, a Messiah will come who will rescue Israel. Now, that's just one example of the, uh, of the words that Daniel uh, um, uh, delivers about the birth of Messiah. If they were in the Old Testament, I'm pretty sure they would have been in the Babylonian literature. So you, 500 years later, sorry, not 500 years, yeah, almost 500 years later, you have these descendants of the Babylonian Empire, these wise men, these magi who were from Babylon. They would have had historical records, holy books that would have contained the writings of Daniel that would have talked about the Judean Messiah. And so these Babylonian wise men would have been the equivalent of priests and they would have been the equivalent of the teachers of the law in, in Jerusalem. And they made the 500-mile journey on camels to honor the birth of the Messiah that was foretold by Daniel in their ancient writings. You might say that they were starstruck. But Matthew makes it clear in his account that the star did not evoke the same response from everyone. The significance of the star of Bethlehem was perceived in different ways by different people. We know from what uh, um, Matthew's already written that King Herod only cared about preserving his dynasty long enough into the future. He was not about to accommodate a rival. Um, so when he hears about this new king being born in the area where he commands in Bethlehem, he formulates a two-pronged strategy. Plan A, which is a targeted assassination and depended on the Magi returning to tell him where the baby Jesus was or the Messiah was. They didn't know he was called Jesus at that time. And if that didn't happen, then plan B was the cruel slaughter of every male infant in Bethlehem from the date that the star arose, if you're familiar with that. But according to Matthew, God intervened in a dream to the Magi to thwart plan A. And then later, although we haven't read it in this excerpt, it, later we read that God intervenes in a dream to urge Joseph to take Mary and Jesus quickly to Egypt so that plan B could be thwarted, or rather that he wouldn't be killed with plan B. Not long after that, Herod died, and with it his murderous campaign, and then Jesus uh, was uh, 
was returned by his parents to Nazareth. Now, you, you might have thought that the people of Jerusalem would have been thrilled that the Jewish Messiah had been born. But astonishingly, no. No, they, they really didn't, according to Matthew. Maybe they cherished the status quo. Maybe their prosperity and security under Herod, which, to be fair, was tenuous, but nevertheless was probably better than outright controlled by the Romans. Maybe they didn't want the boat, the boat rocked. So in Matthew 2, verse 3, we say, King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. So the people of Jerusalem were not excited that there was this Messiah going to be born just down the road in Bethlehem. They were disturbed. They were disturbed. And what about the chief priests and the teachers of the law, the ones who knew all of the prophecies regarding the Messiah? Because they too had the writings of Daniel and Isaiah and other prophets like Malachi. Well, in Matthew 2, 4 to 6, this is what Matthew says. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, this was the religious elite, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least of all the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, with that understanding, you might have thought, with the appearance of the star, with the prophecy of Daniel that we know about, that we've read about in Daniel 9.25, and with their understanding of the role of Bethlehem in the birth of the Messiah, wouldn't they be beating the path to Bethlehem to welcome this Messiah? Wouldn't they? Why did they not do that? Well, they were astonishingly indifferent to God's agenda. Perhaps they too didn't want to rock the boat. Perhaps they too were part of the system, part of the corrupt system that ensured that they retained all of their privileges and power. Perhaps they didn't want a Messiah. I might add at this point, without going into great detail, that the claims of people being messiahs was not an uncommon claim. There were many people who were thought to be messiahs at that time. Maybe they had just become a little bit, well, just diffident to the whole idea of a messiah. Maybe they'd given up hope that God would send a messiah. And therein lies a challenge for us as we just reflect at this time. And it is a good time to reflect Christmas, isn't it? So much going on at Christmas. Not only is it Christmas, it's also the new year. It's, an, it's a change of season. Um, it's a change of pace. It's a time to reflect. So as we reflect today, and as we reflect in the midst of Christmas, maybe therein lies a challenge for us here to reflect on our attitude to Jesus. Are we hostile to Jesus like Herod? And let, let me say this to Christ Jesus. Are we hostile to Christ Jesus? Because the idea that you could be hostile to a historical figure is rather strange. But the idea that you can be hostile to the divine presence of God in everyday life, in the here and now, that's a very different thing. So the question is, are we hostile to Christ, like Herod, or are we indifferent, like the residents of Jerusalem, including the religious leaders? Or are we starstruck, like the wise man? Now, of course, I'm not asking you to consider something that is out of context. The Jews were living in brutal occupation, okay? They were longing for a Jewish a revolutionary king to rise up to lead the Jews in revolt against the Roman oppression, throw off the Roman Empire, and live independently as a nation state. Okay, we're not living in that place. 
We're not living in that place. And that's why we need to interpret in our context. We are living in a big European Christian story that is rooted in the story of a Palestinian Jewish baby, which has real resonance right now, given the conflict. And this Jewish Palestinian baby is widely believed to be the fullness of God in a human being, as Claire said earlier. Not just one aspect of God, but the fullness of God. And it's very hard to get our heads around that, because how can God be in a human being? Like that, is that an outrageous claim? But perhaps this might help us understand it and cognitively grasp it a little bit better. In 1 John 4.16, commonly thought to be written by a letter written by the Apostle John. 1 John 4.16, it says, he says, God is love. God is love. Matthew and John believed that this baby Jesus was divine love personified. Again, it should offend you, it should blow your mind, that concept, that a person could be considered to be the fullness of God. So what is your response to the birth of Christ Jesus? And I emphasize the Christ Jesus, and I'm not asking you just to consider a historical figure. I'm asking you to consider the birth of a person for whom the Spirit of God, the full Spirit of God was present, who was God. What is our response? Are we hostile? Are we indifferent? Or are we starstruck? And we're just going to take a few moments, as is our want now, to reflect. And I just want to encourage you, we're going to play a little bit of music. There'll be an image on the screen of the star. Well, I just invite you just to reflect on your response, not to the historical person of Jesus necessarily, but to the presence of Christ Jesus in your life today, in our world today, more present than we can possibly imagine. I'm asserting that, I'm suggesting that. Why don't we just reflect?
May the mystery of um, the nativity, they being made native, God becoming one of us, may the mystery of that, may it cause hope and joy and love and peace to rise up in our hearts. And as we uh, often gaze into the sky and gaze at the stars, marvelling at the, the sheer vastness of the universe, may we be able to just experience something of the awesomeness of, uh, of the divine and yet the intimacy that we see in Christ Jesus. And may it bring hope and joy and peace and love into our hearts and into the lives of those with whom we live and work and play. As we celebrate the birth of Christ Jesus today. <laughs>